Bienvenue. Hello there and welcome. Welcome to City Breaks to Lose, Episode 4, La Résistance. I'm proposing to devote the whole episode to things which I learnt at just one museum I visited in the city called the Musée de la Résistance et de la Déportation, the Museum of Resistance and Deportation, all about that period in the 1940s when the Germans were occupying Toulouse and when there was a huge underground movement of resistance trying to thwart them in any way they possibly could. So first then, a little history. And then I'm going to mention a number of places in the city where you can find traces of that period. And perhaps even more importantly, I'm going to run through a number of people from the time whose bravery we really shouldn't ever forget. Starting with the history then, in fact, I want to go back just a little bit before World War II to 1936 when the Civil War broke out in Spain. And then more specifically to 1939 when the Spanish Republicans were defeated. Franco took power and there was a huge exodus of Republicans to France. About 20,000 of them ended up in Toulouse where they've settled, many of them and their descendants still live there today, and where they represented about 10% of the population, so they made quite a big impact. And all of that meant that just a year or two later, when Toulouse was occupied by the Germans, there were already a lot of people in place with the knowledge and the skills to help start a resistance movement. These people were politicised. They'd often been leaders of movements in Spain. They were keen to join any other anti-fascist movement. And they brought their knowledge and their experience to help train the French resistance, to help with propaganda, to advise and take part in the evacuation of Jews and trying to repatriate fallen Allied pilots. And all of this meant that Toulouse was well-placed to fight back when the Germans arrived. After the armistice, signed in 1940, the Germans occupied Paris and much of the north of France, and the southern half, including Toulouse, was governed by the Vichy regime, led by General Pétain, which was a collaborationist regime, did many of the things that the Germans wanted done, including deporting what they called undesirable elements, and sending French citizens to German labour camps and to work in the factories over there. It was a time of very difficult living conditions, rationing, curfews, etc. And all of this combined to mean that the population was ripe for the idea of resistance. The fact that on the 11th of November 1943, German troops actually entered Toulouse themselves only stiffened the resolve of the resistance there to fight back. It would of course be wrong to suggest that Everyone in Toulouse formed part of the resistance. A lot of people kept their heads down and tried to just keep out of it. And there were certainly some who collaborated with the Nazis, either taking part in things like the French police, la milice, who worked for the Germans, or by collaborating, spying, denouncing people, and generally working against the resistance. Historians say that, in fact, about as many people took part in the resistance as were collaborators. But it's also true that in the region of Languedoc-Roussillon, partly for some of the reasons I've already outlined, there was a resistance stronghold. It wasn't just the influence of the Spanish. For example, Jean Moulin, perhaps the best-known French resistant, who founded the National Committee for Resistance, came from Béziers. It's also true that, of course, geographically, Languedoc-Roussillon was well-placed, The landscape made it difficult for the Germans to find people who were trying to hide or to spot people who were trying to escape across the Pyrenees to Spain, which was, in theory at least, neutral. 
Resistance was further strengthened then after the Germans arrived in the city and, from the middle of 1944 onwards, spurred on by the knowledge of things like the invasion of Italy by the Allies and the invasion of Normandy, and sensing that the war was coming to an end, resistance became much more open, led to things like street fighting and widespread opposition to the German occupiers, who until then had seemed very much in control. Okay, so that's a brief history of the timeline, if you like. Now I want to go through some of the places in the city which are most connected with the idea of Toulouse as a city of la résistance. They're not necessarily places that you can actually visit today. It's just that walking past them, if you know what they were, really helps you imagine that period of history, which actually, of course, isn't all that long ago, really. The building which represents the absolute centre of Gestapo and Nazi presence in Toulouse is the Prison Saint-Michel, or the St. Michael Prison, which has got a metro station named after it, so it's quite easy to find. In fact, it's called the metro station Saint-Michel-Marcel-Langer. So, ironically, it's named after both the place that was the prison and also one of the resistance who was executed there, Marcel-Langer. More about him in a little while. If you're passing this imposing building, then what you need to know is that it was the place where all the enemies of the Vichy regime were imprisoned. So that would include Jews, foreigners, anyone suspected of being a resistant. And it's important to know, I think, that it was controlled not just by the Germans, but also by the French who collaborated with them, the milice and so on. It was carefully situated near to the Gestapo headquarters, which meant that if you took against prisoners or had real suspicions against them, it was easy to send them along there to be interrogated and it's a place where trials were held, presided over by the Milice Française and from which many people were deported or executed. The Polish resistant Marcel Langer, for example, was executed, he was guillotined in fact, in the courtyard of this building on the 23rd of July 1943. The reason given was that he had been caught transporting explosives I'm sure that was true, but the museum leaflet that I read explained that really the reason was that he was, quote, juif, étranger et communiste, a Jew, a foreigner and a communist. There are other horror stories, such as that of a group of 54 resistants who were taken from the prison by the German police on the 17th of August 1944, so literally days before the liberation of France, and they were taken out to a forest in the vicinity called Buzet-sur-Town and shot. Another place which you will be familiar with if you've spent any time in Toulouse at all is the Place du Capitole and there are various connections between that and the resistance. Was, for example, the site of the speech made by Marshal Pétain on his very first official visit to the southern zone after the armistice. And so unpopular was he, because people knew that he was collaborating with the Germans, that they massed to the square and threw leaflets at his convoy as it passed by. It was also the scene of demonstrations on the 14th of July in both 1942 and 1943, that of course being the great French national holiday normally, which was banned under German occupation. But people did some passive resistance. They came along to the square anyway in huge numbers to mark the occasion, to make sure that everybody knew that the date was important. If you stand outside the Capitol building and look across the square, you'll see all those arches under which there today there are restaurants and cafes. In fact, in the time of the occupation too, it was a place for lots of cafes, but these were known often to be venues for secret meetings. It was quite easy to pop in there, have a quick meeting with somebody, 
and then disappear again without drawing too much attention to yourself. The square was also the scene for two big celebrations towards the end of the war. Firstly, on the 21st of August, 1944, the day of the liberation of France, and then again on the 16th of September, a few weeks later, which was the day that General de Gaulle, who of course had been masterminding the resistance from outside the country, made his first victory visit to Toulouse. Just imagine the scenes of all the people who gathered in the square that day to greet him. You may well pass through the station at some point, La Gare Matabio, and if you do, you can remember that that, of course, was the scene of many, many comings and goings during the war. For example, in 1940, it saw the arrival of thousands of refugees from Belgium and then from other countries, and eventually from the French themselves fleeing the northern occupied part of the country and coming down to Toulouse, where they hoped the regime would be looser. It's also the place from which Jews who had been rounded up by the authorities were deported to the concentration camps. It was a place on any day during that whole period, teeming with German soldiers and milices operating contrôle, so checks on who was coming and who was going, paper checks, passport checks, etc. It was also a place from which some resistance activities were organised. There was a lot of information gathering there by some of the people who worked there, carefully noting German troop movements in and out of the area and passing that on to people a bit higher up the chain from them. On the 18th and 19th of August 1944, so just before the liberation, the train drivers all went on strike because they had been told that they would be taking large groups of German troops away just before the liberation and they decided they weren't going to do that, so they went on strike. Two small shops in roads in the city centre in the old part of town today were very influential during the period. So there's one in the Rue du Languedoc, number 43, in fact, which was at the time the Librairie de Silvio Trentin, so Silvio Trentin's bookshop. Silvio was an Italian anti-fascist who had fled to Toulouse and opened a bookshop, which was a bit of a front, really, because it became a meeting place for anybody interested in the idea of resistance, a place where la parole libérée, or free speech, was known to be allowed, and it became a gathering place for all the people who thought that they would like to, to quote the phrase used at the time, faire quelque chose, do something. So they didn't know quite what they wanted to do, they just wanted to meet others who felt like them and start making plans, and this bookshop was one of the places where they did that. And eventually, from there, a resistance group known as the Réseau Berthaud grew up. One or two streets away, in a road called Rue croix Baragnon, there was a little place called the Imprimerie des Frères Lyon, the print works of the Brothers Lyon. The Brothers Lyon were Henri and Raoul. They ran this print works, and in addition to their ordinary everyday printing work, it became known very much as a place where underground printing could be done. So they printed newspapers which were banned by the Germans. So, for example, one called Le Populaire du Sud-Ouest and another one feistily titled Libération ou Combat. So, liberation or fight. In other words, we won't give up until you liberate us or until we are liberated. It was a place where false papers were produced. Very useful things for the resistance, of course, if they were trying to secrete people out of the area. And such was its reputation that it was sent work by resistance groups from other parts of France, other regions completely. Unfortunately, it came to a very sticky end. In February 1944, 
the Germans had been tipped off, I think, and they came along and arrested the two brothers. And then, worse still, they hid in the shop and just arrested one by one all the people who came along that morning and imprisoned the whole lot at Saint-Michel prison from where they were deported. The men were all sent to the concentration camp Mauthausen and the women to Ravensbrück. And it's known that both of the brothers and probably many of the other people died in the camp. Then there's the Faculté de Médecine, which was an institution in which some of the professors and some of the students, as well as teaching or studying medicine, which is what they were supposed to be doing, also helped the resistance effort. They were instrumental in making false papers, they wrote articles for the resistance press, and they provided medical aid for Maquis who had been injured, or perhaps for pilots or aircrew who had been found, injured when their planes crashed and needed nursing back to health before they could be squirrelled away by the passeur and taken out of France, hopefully, and back to countries that they came from, England and America mainly, to rejoin the fight. It's known too that both teachers and pupils at the grammar school, the Lycée de Fermat, the school was called after the famous mathematician Fermat, were also active in the resistance movement. Some of the teachers worked for them as well as teaching. The staff included one Jean-Pierre Vernon, who eventually became regional head of the FFI, which stands for Force Française de l'Intérieur, so French Forces of the Interior, a quite organised resistance group that was really prevalent in the second half of the occupation period. You may have seen their symbol, which is a cross with not one but two horizontal bars, and if you see any leaflets in French about the resistance, you may well see their motto, which reads as follows. Obéir, c'est trahir. So, to obey is to betray. And then the second line, désobéir, c'est servir. To disobey is to serve. In other words, you were serving your country by just refusing to obey all the rules set up for you by the Germans. Some of their pupils also took part. There were nine in 1942 who set up a little group called the Groupement Insurrectionnel Français. They printed leaflets. They destroyed propaganda posters. They painted Gaulish slogans on buildings until they were caught by the police. And although they were school children, they were tried and fined and imprisoned for a few days. A message to everybody else. Much more seriously than that, four other pupils actually left the school in order to join something called the Group Beer Akim, which was a sort of training ground for would-be resistance in Maquis. And unfortunately, they were caught they were imprisoned in Saint-Michel and they were shot at dawn on the 9th of November 1943, so all under 20. If you go to a road called Esplanade Alain Savary, which is just along from the Musée de la Résistance, you'll find a monument which is labelled as Monument à la Gloire de la Résistance, so a monument to the glory of the resistance. It was set up in 1971 and strategically placed quite near the former Gestapo headquarters, so looking at the building and having the last word. A second monument was erected nearby in 2008. It's called the Memorial de Shoah, and it's a strange setup. It's a series of crypts that you can walk down into and along, and then you come up further along near the botanical gardens, the Jardin des Plantes, just at the spot where the bust of Jean Moulin, so the famous French resistance leader, is placed. Also there is a memorial stone to Marcel Langer and another stone which lists the names of all those who helped Jews during the period, some of whom have also been 
awarded the honour from Israel, known as being called the Righteous Among the Nations, or in French, Juste Parmi les Nations. So, those are some places that you can look out for when you're out and about in the city. But I definitely wanted to mention some people as well, people who've left their trace, whose stories have come down to us, reminding us how bravely some of the French resistance fought against the things that they thought were wrong. Perhaps the best known of them is an archbishop. He was l'archevêque Jules Saliège, and he it was who, in August 1942, which was the date of the first deportation of Jews from Toulouse to Germany, wrote a pastoral letter. He felt he had to do something. Of course, it was very dangerous and risky, but what he decided to do was write a letter and tell all the priests in the city that they must read it out during Mass on the following Sunday. The Vichy government immediately banned the idea, and the Archbishop's response was to renew his request. Yes, they should definitely read it out. It was read out in many churches. It was read out too on Radio Londres, so Radio London, broadcast by the BBC, into France. And so a lot of people did get to hear his plea that they should help the Jews in any way they could, really. Suggestions included helping to provide false papers, giving people safe places to hide, contributing to the fund that was set up to help them. And such was his impact that after the war, he was made a Compagnon de la Libération, so awarded the highest prize that France could offer for people who took part in the Libération. His letter is still much quoted even today, it's very simply written, but gets absolutely straight to the point. So he starts by talking about the children, women, mothers and fathers who had been treated like animals and how terrible it was that they had been separated one from the other and sent off to unknown destinations. He talks about the scenes of horror that have played out across the city and finishes by saying the following, which is often quoted. Les juifs sont des hommes, les juives sont des femmes. The Jews are men and women. Ils font partie du genre humain. They are part of the human race. Ils sont nos frères comme tant d'autres. They are our brothers, as are so many other people. Un chrétien ne peut l'oublier. A Christian cannot forget this. So no politics, just really a basic appeal to human dignity. What a brave man. We do know that he survived the war, but he can't have known that when he was writing the letter. He must have been aware of the risk that he was running. Then there's Marcel Langer. I've already mentioned him. He was a Polish Jew, in fact. He'd come via the Spanish Republican Army. He'd fought for that until they were defeated. And he had had to flee Spain and flee the Franco regime. When he arrived in France, it wasn't long before he was founding a resistance brigade there, known as the 35th Brigade, which was a collection of urban guerrillas, really. Their specialisms were things like sabotaging telephone lines and throwing grenades at transport that was taking German soldiers about. His stated aim, in fact, was to create, quote, un climat d'insécurité pour l'armée allemande, a climate of insecurity for the German army. And then I'd like to mention, too, a husband and wife, a very brave couple, Augustine and Stanisla Mangelard, who were hotel owners. Their hotel was called the Hôtel de Paris, in the Rue Gambetta, and they began by hiding Spanish Republican refugees before the Germans got as far as Toulouse. But then when they did arrive, they started offering help to the French resistance as well. They hid people. They allowed part of their hotel to be used as a weapons cache, even after German soldiers were billeted on them. But eventually they were denounced by somebody. More proof, of course, that not everybody was part of the resistance. There certainly were two sides to this. 
they were arrested and they were sent to concentration camps. Stanislaw was never seen again. Augustine was liberated by the Red Cross in May 1945. And in fact, when she got back to Toulouse, she simply carried on her work helping refugees and exiles, this time, of course, from the Spanish regime. So after everything she'd been through, her instinct was still to help where she could. Then finally, a lady called Marie-Louise Trissard, very well known in Toulouse, she ran a whole escape network to help Jews get out of the city and to help pilots and air crew escape. She found contacts, she knew about safe houses, she could get false papers, she knew who could be trusted as a passeur, somebody to walk, for example, a pilot across the border into Spain. She'd been a seamstress and one of her specialities was to make costumes to disguise air pilots as farm labourers or cripples or all sorts of things, anything that she thought would help them get past the German checks. It's believed, actually, that she helped 700 members of Allied aircrew get through Toulouse and off out back home. The usual route being walking to Spain over the Pyrenees and then hoping to make it from there to London or perhaps Gibraltar. If you are able to visit the Musée de la Résistance in Toulouse, you'll be able to find out more about all the places that I've mentioned and all the people that I've mentioned and many, many more. But I'd like to finish by talking about a book which I came across called The Lost Airman, written by Seth Meyerwitz and published by Atlantic Books in 2016. So Seth, the author, is the grandson of an American gunner called Arthur Meyerwitz who had been shot down near Toulouse in 1943 and who did manage to escape via Spain, Gibraltar and London all the way back to the US. And it's the story of how he managed to do that and all the people who helped him on his way. It's based, I think, on family papers, plus extensive research, which the author did in France, including interviews with people who remembered some of the events his grandfather had been involved in. So in the early chapters of the book, he is in a plane which crashes in the countryside, somewhere outside Toulouse. And although he's injured, he does manage to walk away and find a farmhouse. And outside it, he sees a young woman and he knows that really, He's going to have to take a risk. He's never going to be able to manage by himself. So he goes up to her and explains that he's an American and a Jew and asks for her help. And she replies in broken English, quote, we will take care of you. And the story takes off from there. There's a lot of detail about how he's passed between safe houses, a whole network overseen by an absolute hero of a man called Marcel Taillandier. But actually a whole string of ordinary families who just were willing to take the risk and pass him from one house to another and keep him safe and find a way of sending him on on the next little bit of his journey. And the book, very movingly, is dedicated to, quote, my grandfather Arthur and the men and women of France who saved his life. It does read as a very exciting story, even though you know the end that he must have made it back to France because you know that he went on to tell his story in great detail. And it's a really good insight into life in occupied France at the time and into the bravery of the ordinary French people and their resistance leaders who did so much, took so many risks to help a stranded foreigner and to help the war effort. If they could get the pilot back home, he could carry on fighting against the Germans on their behalf. Here, for example, is a paragraph describing what it was like to go out into Toulouse in the daytime during this period. Quote, Wherever he went in the city, Swastikas surrounded him. Not only were Nazi flags draped above the doorways of every public building, but they also fluttered from every flagpole. 
Banners with the loathsome symbol were affixed to street lamps and trees. Giant gilded brass eagles, whose talons grasped lightning bolts and swastikas were attached to walls throughout Toulouse. In every corner of the city, there was no escaping the Nazis' emblems of occupation. He goes on to describe seeing Germans in the street, shouting Juden whenever they thought they'd seen somebody Jewish, and attacking them, and then tossing them into the back of a truck and driving them off. There are descriptions of some of the many places in which the pilot and the passeur who was trying to help him escape were forced to hide. They spent most of the daytime hiding because obviously they'd be easy to spot otherwise, so they had to do their walking at night. And he describes, for example, a very damp hideout with a leaking roof in which they were forced to huddle all day and get wetter and wetter and where they couldn't even light a fire to dry their clothes because they knew that the glow or the smoke might attract suspicion. He talks too about the food that they were given, how they were hungry most of the time, but how local people and resistance fighters, despite the fact that they too were very hungry, would bring along things like, quote, cold pails of potatoes, radishes and carrots, as well as an occasional skinned and boiled rabbit or quail that they'd trapped in the woods. There's a lot of material about Marcel Taillandier, whom at the time I don't think Arthur realised was actually very high up in the resistance, One of his jobs was helping Arthur on his way, but at the same time he was masterminding lots of other plots and schemes and would keep disappearing. There's a description at one point of the fact that he set himself up running a bar in Toulouse, something called the Frascati Bar and Café in the centre of Toulouse, which he turned into a meeting place. So members of his resistance group would come there to plan their operations. But they were hiding in plain sight really, because at the same time all sorts of people were coming and going. Here's how the author puts it. Quote, in a real-life scenario, reminiscent of Rick's Café and the classic film Casablanca, the bistro was packed with local partisans, collaborators, Gestapo and Vichy police. The Frascati also featured an upstairs brothel with prostitutes who proved to be patriots by passing useful tidbits of information from Nazis and collaborators to Taillandier. There are grim descriptions of some of their more violent activities, So, for example, in October 1943, he writes how Taillandier had got an order from London to eliminate someone called Colonel Jean Sénac because he was a German plant. They knew that he was spying for the Germans. He was working with the police in Toulouse, but liaising at the same time with a local Gestapo officer. He had given away quite a lot of resistance groups all over southwest France. And because of information that he passed on, numerous French men and women were ambushed, arrested, tortured and executed by the Nazis. So they really had to get rid of him. Here's the paragraph which describes what happened about that. Quote, Senac, in a top coat, scarf and white fedora, emerged from Gestapo headquarters, adjacent to Toulouse's elegant and palatial capital, on the brisk fall morning of October the 15th, and walked down the steps. The Place du Capitole teemed with people heading to work and with Gestapo and police. Suddenly, a black Citroen pulled up alongside Senac. Two men sprang from the car, grabbed him and flung him into the back seat. Then the car sped away. That night, Senac was tried at the Chateau de Prax and summarily executed by Pierre as Gestapo and police mounted a futile door-to-door search in Toulouse. In a chapter towards the end of the book, the author tells us what happened in the end to Taillandier, who unfortunately didn't survive. He had been identified as a, quote, person of interest, in other words, somebody had decided to give him away, and one morning when he was crossing the Place du Capitole, 
in central Toulouse, he was approached by six Gestapo agents. He was quick enough to see them coming. He pulled out a revolver and fired on them and then ran away. And on that occasion, he did manage to get away. So he went underground for a few weeks and then resurfaced, hoping to carry on his work. But by this time, of course, all the Nazis were looking for him and in the end he was cornered in a side street. He did nearly manage it. He ducked into a blacksmith's forge and was directed down a little side road and when that turned out to be a cul-de-sac, no way out, not quite sure whether the blacksmith knew that or not, I think the implication is perhaps that he did, Tayondi anyway decided that what he would do was climb up onto the church roof and see if he could escape that way. This is what happened next. Quote, a window suddenly opened on the house across the street from the church. A woman's shouts caused some of the Germans to stop and run back towards the sound. There he is, she yelled, pointing at the roof of the church. As Taillandier squeezed off several shots from his revolver, the Germans opened up with rifles, submachine guns and lugers. Tiles shattered as rounds ripped into the roof and slammed into Taillandier from head to toe. He tumbled from the roof, dead before he hit the street, riddled with bullets. The Gestapo dragged away his body. Days later, the long, dried-out trail of blood left by the body remained in the street, a warning to other men and women of the resistance. We learn that the Germans threw his body into a shallow mass grave, but that after the war, in fact, it was exhumed, and it was buried in the centre of the city beneath the monument to him. Posthumously, Taillandier was given all the honours that France could bestow on him, so he became a Légion d'honneur and a Compagnon de la Libération, and he was awarded the Croix de Guerre, France's highest military honour. He's still talked about today as one of France's greatest World War II heroes, a symbol of the resistance. I do thoroughly recommend that book to you as an exciting story and a really moving testament to the bravery of so many people of the time. I'll just finish by reading to you a recommendation from another author, Jack Cheevers, in which he wrote the following. This is, quote, a deeply researched, finely wrought gem, the story of Staff Sergeant Arthur Mayowitz's harrowing struggle to escape from Nazi-infested France across the snowbound Pyrenees to Spain. It will haunt you long after you've put his riveting book down. So that brings me more or less to the end of the episode, except that I would like to just add a postscript to say that after the war finished, after the liberation, the struggle in Toulouse did carry on in the sense that there were still all those Spanish resistance fighters and their families unable to go home because of the rule of Franco. That went on until his death in 1975, and during all that time, so 30 years, Toulouse acted as a centre of resistance for those people. It was a place where things like the Spanish Socialist Party and many other political parties and unions held their meetings. Many buildings throughout the city were used, and the Place Wilson served in many ways as a central meeting place. It was known that Spanish exiles would gather there to meet, to talk. The place became known actually as El Parlamento, so the Spanish Parliament. It was a place where you could buy Republican newspapers, things like El Socialista, which were even printed in Toulouse in the early days. And it's for these reasons, and many more, that Toulouse was known as, quote, la capitale de l'exil républicain, the capital of Republican exile. The museum's leaflet talks about the, quote, Republican exile that never gave up, and explains that for this reason, Toulouse is the most Hispanic of France's great cities. So, to finish then, just a brief reminder 
about the museum, the Musée de la Résistance et de la Déportation. You can find their website, you can find your way to them from any number of leaflets given out at the tourist office, etc. And it's a visit that I really would highly recommend. It's absolutely full of posters and information and realia recalling that period. Although I have to say their use of English isn't too hot. So if your French isn't very good, it's probably best if you know a bit about it before you actually get there. But nevertheless, the photos you can see and the documents you can see all combined to tell a story that we really should always be remembering. As for next week then, I'm going to stick with museums, but I'm going to group several together and just talk about the things that they tell us about various aspects of history and traditions in the city. I can promise you everything from the story of Wode from the 15th century right up to the absolute minute and indeed the future with space exploration, space travel, etc. And a number of things in between, all of which make today's Toulouse the city that it is and all of which have museums and places that you can visit if they should be particular areas of interest for you. So I hope you'll join me for that. But meanwhile, I'd just like to thank you very much for listening. Merci bien. And to wish you goodbye, until next time then, au revoir.